are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Hey, Dr. Peterson here. Before we get started, Dr. Hal has requested the views and opinions shared on this episode are her own personal opinions and views and not of her employer. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are talking about the general approach to managing people long-term or active recovery. We have Dr. Elizabeth Hal back to give us some perspective on medications and a general guide on how do we keep our patients safe and manage a lot of these things that come up during the recovery process. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Hal to just give her an introduction. Really, the, those of us that know Dr. Hal, she almost needs no introduction. She is so well known in the addiction field. Dr. Hal. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me back. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this top. It's one of my favorites. And really, I think it's been one that has been kind of lost in the addiction field recently. So my background, I started working in addiction treatment in 1983. I was totally clueless about what I was doing, but I had some great mentors along the way and have been working in the addiction field ever since for nearly 40 years now. And currently I'm, I'm board certified in addiction psychiatry and in addiction medicine and also general psychiatry. And I work at the University of Utah. I'm on the faculty there and I am the program director for the Addiction Medicine and Addiction Psychiatry Fellowships. And I do a lot of other things, search and other education, teaching, you name it. Great. Well, we're so happy to have you. We really enjoyed having you for the cannabis episodes. And so why is this your favorite topic? Like, why is this important? And why do you think it's fallen away kind of from the spotlight in in addiction medicine and addiction psychiatry? I don't know why it's fallen away, but I know that when I was first learning about addiction treatment, first of all, we didn't really have a lot of medications for addiction treatment at that time. We had methadone and we had anabuse or disulfiram. And so there was not nearly as much emphasis on medications. And in fact, we didn't have a lot of the psychiatric medications that we use now. Lithium was still kind of a big thing, a big new thing back then. And we didn't have any of the anticonvulsant medications that didn't have any gabapentinoids. We didn't have a lot of, so we really, I think, had to focus on non-medication management of people who are in early and, and long-term recovery. So I think that's one thing because you can't really study this concept that I'm going to talk about, the cross-addiction concept, because you'd have to really take people who are in recovery from one drug and purposefully give them long-term treatment with addicting drugs and see how they did. And I don't think that anybody would be willing to do that. It wouldn't be ethical to do that. And I do think there are exceptions. So first of all, I'll just kind of tell you what I'm talking about. There's two different things. First of all, I think we need to differentiate between cross tolerance and cross addiction. So cross tolerance is just this pharmacologic thing that happens that if you've been using a drug over and over again, that an addicting drug, and it leads to tolerance, you need more and more 
sort of get the same effect. That's just plain old tolerance. Cross tolerance is I've been drinking alcohol for many years and I work my way up to a high tolerance and then I stop. But instead of giving me alcohol to detox me from or withdraw me from alcohol, what do we do? We use different drugs. We use things that are safer. We use benzodiazepines like Valium or Diazepam or Librium. And then you're put on those medications instead and then you're withdrawn from those. Well, the reason that works is because alcohol and benzos are cross-tolerant, meaning that they cause very similar effects in the brain. Same thing with your addicted to opiates or opioids. You've been using heroin, you come into treatment, and then you're given methadone or you're given buprenorphine, which substitutes and works similarly to the heroin on the in the brain. And then you can either be stabilized on that or withdrawn from that. So that's cross tolerance. And that's really at the basis of a lot of things we do in our treatment. If we didn't have cross tolerance, a lot of people would be in danger and they'd be uncomfortable and all that stuff. But what I'm talking about now is cross addiction, which is the simple way to put it is if you've been addicted or had, you know, loss of control and trouble with one addicting drug, you really need to avoid other addicting drugs that work similarly. And I'll talk about the exceptions in a minute. Obviously, some of you are already thinking about the exceptions. So if I have alcoholism, the answer is not to give me long-term treatment with benzodiazepine. You don't to substitute another drug because if, unless it's something like the two, the exceptions I think of are the medications for opioid use disorder, methadone and buprenorphine that are potentially addicting drugs, but they can also be stabilizing drugs and they work well for people to stabilize them. So I don't want, you know, to say you don't use anything that's not potentially addicting, but most of the time what happens is if, if someone has been drinking and then they stop using alcohol and they add, say, clonazepam or clonopin or something like that for their anxiety, it's much more rare that that is stabilizing. It might be stabilizing for a while, and then the person often will lose control over the drug that's been kind of substituted for whatever they were originally using. I don't like that whole term of drug of choice because I think it's misleading. But the the point is that if you've been addicted to one drug that's potentially addicting, you need to assume that your brain is primed to be addicted to any or all or some of the other potential addicting drugs out. Yeah, that's such a simple concept, but I think it's hard to understand, right? We use that concept in medicine all the time, like the vulnerable brain of someone who has migraine or seizures, not just one trigger can cause a migraine. In the future, different triggers may cause that syndrome. Exactly. And we're aware of that as practitioners, but we don't always think about that in the context of addiction. Right. I can't point you to uh, studies that would support this in a clinical sense, but I think we could probably look at more of the granular kind of things that are happening in the brain. So for example, let's say if someone uses a stimulant, it's going to affect one system or, you know, one set of neurotransmitters as an entry point. If they use alcohol, it's going to be a 
another set of either structures or neurotransmitters in the brain. But ultimately, everything goes through the same final common pathway, the pleasure reward pathway. And your brain is really stupid. It can't tell the difference. It just knows that's good. Give me more. You know, that's kind of what's going on in there. And it, and that's how primitive it is because it's in a very primitive part of our brain that this addiction is happening. Now, let's just talk about a couple of examples. Let's say a person who's been in recovery from their alcoholism for 20 years and they get older and we get older and we get arthritis and we have knee problems and we need knee replacements and things like that. Not a very uncommon scenario. And, and so when you do go in for surgery, most of the time you're going to be prescribed an opioid. You don't have to be. They're actually not as effective as people tend to think they are. Um, but that's a whole different story that would probably warrant a whole episode. <laughs> but anyway, so let's say you go and you have a knee replacement and you're given an opioid and you have been in recovery. You haven't had anything to drink or use for 20 plus years and you start taking the opioids and you may take them exactly as prescribed and you may respond to them and get some pain relief and may have this medical condition that really warrants some pain control. But the danger is always there that that other addicting drug, even though it's helping you, even though you have a legitimate medical problem that it could help, that drug can still trigger the sleeping giant that's within your brain. It's it's not, you're not thinking about this. You're not thinking, oh, I think I'll go relapse now that I've had opioid. Your unconscious, very primitive brain is going, oh, wow, that's good stuff. You know, I think I want more of that. And then there's this, you know, the thinking part of your brain that's saying, I'm in good recovery. I want to stay in good recovery. I'm going to manage these pills and be responsible and et cetera, et cetera. And all those thoughts are really good. They're appropriate. That has nothing to do with what happens in the unconscious, you know, primitive part of your brain, which can have its addiction, you know, that sort of addictive process woken up 20 years later. And then suddenly it's like, there's a couple things that can happen. You can say, well, gosh, you know, I haven't had a drink in 20 years. I could probably drink something so that it awakes the, awakens the craving for your drug that you started with. Or you could get uh, out of control with the pain meds that you'd never taken before. Or you could end up with both, you know. I love that example because I remember it was probably the second ASAM conference that I ever went to when I was a resident. The speaker who was giving a lecture similar like this gave a perfect example of exactly what you're talking about, Beth, that he was actually consulted on his addiction service because it was by a colleague who was in recovery for alcohol use disorder and had to have a knee replacement mm -hmm. and said, I, I cannot have opiates. So they came up with the whole treatment plan, had it in place for what they would do for pain management. And this guy, same thing, had been 20 plus years, no relapses, treatment plan in place. They decided to do an extended block. It was during like 48 hours into his post-op case. He was having a little bit of like increased pain. It was middle of the night. Resident like on duty come in, didn't consult the chart and just kind of fell back on their kind of standard care. Patient calls, they're having more pain. Gave him opiates 
sense completely did just what you're talking about and ended up causing this guy a seven month relapse you know Mm -hmm. from one dose because it wasn't till the morning you know this guy comes in is just like oh my gosh what happened you weren't supposed to give him this we had this plan in place so interesting because I think so many patients just think hey I put this behind me this was like you said this was never opiates were never an issue for me I should be fine it's not a problem but it we see it all the time I mean that's why we're having this conversation right yeah yeah and there's I mean my colleagues around the country could give us a million examples of things like this that they seem so benign they're not at all and actually there have been people who get exposed to opioids after years of sobriety, whether they've been sober from alcohol or abstinent from other drugs, and really never come back from that relapse and actually can die from it. So it's a very, very in my opinion, high risk procedure to give someone in recovery an addicting drug, unless it's really absolutely necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so it comes down to informed consent, I think a lot of times, Mm -hmm. you know, and also getting a history because I've had we see the other side of it, right? As addiction specialists, we we see people when they're struggling back in their addiction, when they were exposed to a new drug class or an experienced cross addiction or or like you said, they relapse back to their original drug or alcohol. And it's, it's kind of traumatic and devastating for them. And a lot of times they either the history wasn't taken that they had a prior substance use disorder, or it was taken and not understood that exactly. there really was this risk. And I think sometimes too, the misunderstanding is on the side of the patient where they don't realize that this medication that's being prescribed to them could have addicting properties. I just saw a patient today like that, who's now really struggling with pregabalin after really doing a lot of work to recover from his opioid use disorder, including going through drug court and losing a lot. And he's devastated. He's like, I can't believe I'm, he acknowledges it. He's out of control. He's like, I can't believe I'm back here again. And I had no idea when this mm-hmm. was prescribed to me originally, I had no idea this could probably be addicting to me. It's yeah. really sad to hear that, that we were really part of the problem there as the provider and the prescriber. I had a classic example of this many years ago someone I knew who was in, you know, sort of early recovery, like first year or so. The story is pretty appalling, actually. He started having headaches. He went into his primary care and said, you know, I'm having headaches and I need to figure out what's going on. It's really bothering me. It's interfering with my work, etc. His doctor wrote him a prescription and this guy was not at all in medicine. He was in business or something else. And, and he said, well, and he did exactly what he had been taught to do when he was in treatment. He said, I am a recovering addict and I need to not receive anything that is potentially addictive. And the doctor looked at him and he said, well, what were you addicted to? And he said, alcohol and cocaine, which I think is what he was addicted to, something like that. And the doctor said, well, there's no alcohol or cocaine in this. And he sent him out. And so my friend was a little disconcerted and wasn't happy with that answer. Luckily for him, he had a really good addiction medicine specialist that he was working with. So he goes in to see this addiction specialist, and it turns out that what he had been prescribed was Fioranol with Cody. His addiction specialist said, well, why were you prescribed this? And he said, because I have headaches. It turns out he was hypertensive, and he needed to have antihypertensives. And that was never even considered. The physician just said, oh, you're anxious. 
anxious and you're having tension headaches and, and prescribe something that could have easily led him back to a severe relapse. You know, I have a slide and my term on there is physicians and other prescribers are woefully ignorant about or choose to ignore the risk for cross addiction and iatrogenic relapse. And it, it's really malpractice, I think. And even when there's a legitimate medical or psychiatric rationale for the use of these medications, like if, if you're in recovery and you start having panic attack, well, sure, I'll praise the Lamb or Xanax as a medication that you can use for that, but it's not for you. You know, if you're in recovery, you have to, it's just like you have to almost consider that you're allergic to it and that you need to avoid it. You know, and the only time I would really use benzodiazepines with someone who's in recovery, and there, like I said, there's always exceptions. Some of them are, let's say, you're in recovery, you have a relapse, you have to be detoxed again from alcohol. I would use them there. I have a few patients who have terrible fear of like flying, for example. They may have a small prescription of, of a benzo that they have to tide them over. I try not to do that. And if I do, I, I try to do it very infrequently. I'm always having to send nasty notes to my colleagues and in my <laughs> our electronic medical record saying, don't you remember this person's in recovery? Why are you giving them a prescription for Xanax? It's, it's good that I don't get more profane than that. To me, it's just like if I looked at a chart and saw that you were allergic to penicillin and I said, oh, I'm just going to ignore that. Probably You could probably think your way through that allergy and wrote you a prescription for penicillin. That would be like malpractice. And to me, that's what it's like when people give folks in recovery these potentially addicting drugs. And, you know, pregabalin and uh, gabapentin and things like that are very tricky drugs. They hit the same system as the benzodiazepines. We've all been kind of lulled and brainwashed into thinking that a lot of the things that we prescribe are very benign and they're not always benign. And especially for people in recovery, they're not benign. I recently met somebody in very early recovery who said, oh yes, I went to an addiction specialist and he gave me pregabalin or Lyrica. And I'm thinking, it's, I was like, what is that person thinking? Because there's so many people that get in trouble with it. Yeah. And what's interesting too, and I learned this lesson when I worked with you, Beth, in inpatient management of people who are experiencing withdrawal, is it's not only classically addicting drugs that can be threatening. So it's not only schedule two, three, four drugs. It can also be any drug that alters the sensorium. Mm -hmm. And so this is why you often see patients, you know, in recovery or even with active substance use disorder as well, who seek out sedating and mind altering medications mm -hmm. that to the majority of medical providers are really benign, like promethazine, muscle relaxants, certain sleepers, and then over-the-counter medications. And we have a whole episode on the abuse of over-the-counter medications. I think it's a great episode, but those medications can really be threatening to people too. I, I had a patient when I just started first practicing addiction medicine, and she went, we were able to get her to treatment for her alcohol use disorder. She, she came to me struggling with alcohol. She went to treatment. She did very well, came out of treatment. And she did well initially, but then when she would come to my appointments, I knew something was not right. You know, you could see, see it. And urine drug screens were negative. She said she was not drinking, not taking 
benzodiazepines, but it turns out she was drinking bottles and bottles of Benadryl. Mm -hmm. And she had figured out that that made her feel different and made her brain feel what she needed to feel for whatever reason, similarly to alcohol. But in her mind, she was sober. Mm -hmm. She was doing everything she should do. She was maintaining to all kind of the expectations of her program, but she had fallen, unfortunately, into the trap of a medication that affected her brain similarly. Yeah. And so there's a uh, medication guide and, and you'll, I think you're going to put my wiki site on the, the reference on there, you know, the podcast resources or whatever, but there's a very long long pamphlet about medications that you should always avoid, medications that are safe, but then that middle category, they may or may not be okay. If, for example, if, if that person was having an anaphylactic reaction to an insect bite or something, a very bad allergic reaction, I would give them IM Benadryl and some other stuff too. I wouldn't hesitate because it's sort of like, do I save your life or do I split hairs about what you should or shouldn't take? In the As a general rule, those kind of medication should only be used occasionally. To empower patients to have that information. So I think people who are in formal treatment programs, whether it's residential or IOP, or they're involved in mutual groups like AA, they might be exposed to this kind of mentoring where you know, be careful what you take. Always ask your prescriber if that medication is safe. Read labels on over-the-counter bottles, but not everybody gets that information. And so we can impart that to our colleagues and then also to the patients. What I have a question about patients in very early recovery who come to you on multiple medications. A gentleman come out of detox, mm-hmm. quotation marks, on no psychiatric history prior to entering treatment for his alcohol use disorder and came out of detox on 800 milligrams of Seroquel, 5 milligrams of Abilify, 50 milligrams of Visteral TID, all just started de novo in detox. And I, maybe that's an extreme case that was an extreme case. Um, and I said, why did you get prescribed such a high dose of Seroquel and Abilify? I said, oh, I'm just so anxious. I'm so anxious and I can't sleep. And so I think, you know, tell, tell us a little bit about how this happens and how people fall into polypharmacy and what we can do to avoid it. I think we're in a, a time where we feel in society, people feel like if they have a feeling, an emotion, a sensation or whatever, that something needs to be done about it. I think sitting with discomfort is not something that we learn to do very well in the United States, at least, and probably in many other countries. But having said that, most of us are looking, you know, in the in this country, at least, a lot of people are looking for chemical solutions to every problem. And it's just kind of wired into the way the things that we hear on TV and radio and all that sort of thing. So this idea that you would be potentially be sober, even if you don't have an addiction, is a very unusual one. But taking somebody who's very early in recovery, who's just gotten out of off of using drugs and has been detoxed, they're going to be flooded with all kinds of emotions then sensations, and they're going to be uncomfortable. And there's no way around that. Early recovery is uncomfortable. But that does not mean that every symptom and problem that they're having has to be medicated. I think that my colleagues often will say, well, we've got to do something about this. And really what you have to do about it is wait a while. That's what you need to do. Wait a while. (laughs) 
<laughs> because things will get better as long as you don't use and you don't pile a bunch of other stuff on. Now, clearly, if somebody came in and they had a long history of psychosis or something and they needed medication like 800 milligrams of Seroquel, that would be another situation. But with no prior history and really nothing except addiction going on, I would be very, very gingerly about giving many medications in early sobriety. Having said that, if you're so uncomfortable that you can't stay off drugs and alcohol, then I would try to give things that were helpful but not super sedating. So for example, 800 milligrams of Seroquel sounds pretty sedating. I don't think that's, that's not the goal. You're not trying to get, not trying to help somebody with get the, getting sober by having, by making them so sedated that they can't function. And so most of the time, and I'm sure you have the same experience that I'm de-prescribing things for people in early recovery and saying, I don't know that you really need that. Also have patients who come to be detoxed and they are already on two or three different psychiatric meds because somebody's been trying to treat their addiction symptoms with psychiatric meds, which will never work. Sometimes it's awkward because it, I can't figure out if I should stop those or taper them or what I should do or if I should leave them the same way until they get off the drugs that they've been using, the addicting drugs, and then try to, to change that. At any rate, I think many people can be deprescribed fairly drastically from the medications that they've been given in that situation. Yeah, we struggled. Um, I, In my experience, taking care of a population that were quite vulnerable and had a lot of social determinants of health uh -huh. kind of against their favor, they we really struggled with polypharmacy in that clinic. And for this reason, they had a lot high ACE scores, a lot of psychosocial stressors with experiencing homelessness, legal charges, violence, history. They ended up on a lot of medications. And after working with my colleagues and reviewing the chart, we had many, many of those patients on eight or more medications and we had to work really hard to deprescribe because yeah. it comes out of it. I really think it comes out of a place of goodwill. Maybe providers, we want to help people right? and patients come in and they're genuinely in distress and, you know, they can't sleep. They have restless legs. They're anxious. They have pain. And this is how they end up on medications. It's not that we're purposefully trying to hurt them, no. but every time they come, they end up with a new medication or a higher dose. And then finally they walk away and we don't know what's going on because they're on so many medications. It's a good lesson. I really like that lesson to be cautious about what's really going on and have time be the essence of letting people just get better with time, with good old lifestyle things too, like good sleep, good nutrition, movement, things like that, that can be very helpful. Yeah. And I think that it's the same kind of trap that we got into with pain is the fifth vital sign. And everybody has this expectation that we should have no pain. Well, that's not really the reality. And that applies not just to physical, but also to emotional pain. No one wants to feel emotional pain. And when you've completely changed your brain with whatever you've been using in your addiction, and then you stop that, even if you do it safely and you're safely withdrawn from the medication or drugs that you've been taking, your brain is having to completely reorganize itself. And that process takes about two years. And the worst part is the first 90 days. Now, on the other hand, as you both know, plenty of people don't stick it out to get to that 90 days. So you always have to kind of weigh, okay, I really don't think you need this medication long term, but maybe we can give you something short term that will help you be less distressed and anxious so that you can actually stay in treatment that's going to help you. And of course, Paula, you and I both know that there's other things 
things like the AccuDetox and things like that that can help people that are that's not medication but seems to kind of calm down the system enough so that people are are more able and willing to stay in treatment and stay abstinent long enough for their brain to heal up. But that's the biggest challenge is just getting through those first months and years without going in total panic to someone saying, you've got to do something. You've got to help me. I have all these symptoms and they sound really terrible and they sound really scary and and providers want to help. And so they pile on all these medications and just often they're just compounding the problem. Hopefully they're not giving them addicting meds, but sometimes they do. And I see a lot of people who end up on benzodiazepines because they have such terrible anxiety in their early recovery. And I'm like, oh, great. So you're going to give them another addiction. How nice. That's not what we want to do. Okay. So here's the loaded question. We're living in an era of increasing cannabis use for quotation medical reasons. Mm -hmm. Utah now has medical marijuana laws and we're seeing this every day where patients in early recovery or sustained recovery are seeing cannabis as a as a good option and so mm-hmm. what do you, what do you think about that yeah i mean it's i don't think it is i mean i don't think the evidence is there whether it so i think there's a couple things that can happen one is that the person can substitute cannabis and end up with a whole set of problems from the cannabis itself or it even if they don't end up with cannabis use disorder they end up with just kind of stunting their recovery from the other drugs that they're getting off of. You know, in the 12-step programs, they call it the marijuana maintenance program. And it's a dangerous pathway to go down. I think it's, but really the the research is not there to support that, you know, cannabis is a way to recover from other addictions. Yeah, I was talking to somebody very recently who just stopped drinking, but is having trouble with sleep. And so is using edible THC for sleep, but the longer that this person has been off alcohol, the more that they realize that, boy, they kind of have some, they think they might be getting into problems with the edibles. You know, at least they're honest about it. Most people are like, oh, you know, cannabis is is harmless, which is not harmless. It does have a lot of effects, especially when you're using the high dose, high potency THC product, which I talked about before. But it's not the answer. I mean, well, I really like what you said, though, when you talked about how it really just, even if they don't develop a cannabis use disorder, it kind of stunt their recovery. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you. I and Paula, I'm sure you see it too. I see this frequently. I mean, I'll have patients come in and somewhere along the line, somebody gave them a cannabis card for their anxiety or their sleep, which is not an approved reason for a cannabis card. But somehow people with active addictions are getting cannabis cards all over the place. That's my soapbox. But and you see this like, they just are stalled out in their recovery process. And I have two patients that come from this place and you taught us this, Beth, this was totally from you come from this place of curiosity. Why are you using it? What effect do you think it's giving you got two of my patients to finally just, hey, give it nine months, just try, (laughs) try Mm -hmm. not using 
I mean, it's like a new person emerged. Mm-hmm. Like, and one of my patients was got a better job, bought a house, got married. Amazing. And I'm like, all and they we changed nothing in their recovery process, but stopped the cannabis. That was it. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, I mean, it was that dramatic, honestly, you mm-hmm. know, it, which is so interesting. Yeah, no, but I, I think so. I'm going to play devil's advocate because there's a um, harm reduction group that I've been going out with and they're big proponent. They're they're in recovery themselves. These people are, their platform is that people with addiction are much safer using cannabis than resorting back to opioids. Mm. You know, so how do you answer that? It's a harm reduction measure, in other words, to use cannabis instead of using heroin or oxycodone. I, that's an argument that a lot of people use that cannabis is a lot safer than alcohol. It's a lot safer than opioids. And in some ways, yeah, because you can have psychosis to the point that you do actually risk your life with cannabis, but it, it's so much less. I mean, the death rates would be so much less, but it kind of depends on what your goal is. If it's harm reduction, then, I mean, some people are still using heroin as part of harm reduction. So it, it just kind of depends on what you're, you're trying to, to do. If you're someone who doesn't want or intend to ever stop using completely, it's a less harmful drug than a lot of things that people use. So, I mean, that's right. I don't, I I can't argue with that. It's just that if you're really trying to be a person who's in recovery, kind of the gold standard recovery is for me that you aren't using anything that's potentially addicting or, or mind altering. That gives your brain the best chance of healing up the most and having a different life. And I have these conversations with people a lot where they're like, oh, I've got a medical cannabis card. And I'm like, well, you know, you're recovering whatever substance use disorder from that you have. And really, our recommendation is to avoid even that. And they're like, well, no, man, this is what really makes me get be able to get through life if their life is getting better okay but if you know usually it's somebody who's having more and more and more consequences from their use and things are not getting better they may say well i'm using cannabis to stay off alcohol but they're in the hospital for an alcohol related medical problem you know for like the third time in a while so it, it you know things are getting worse that's not a good recovery measure in my book. I think we have to look at this whole idea of why is it different? Why do we feel it's different for people to be on methadone or buprenorphine when they have opioid use disorder? Because they're taking something that is potentially addicting or it's a, you know, it's another opioid. Why is that different? Some people in in the field would say it's not any different and you're not really sober if you're or abstinent if you're taking maintenance medication. Two things, it is kind of a harm reduction method because you're substituting something safer. You're not taking something that you have to go out and lie, cheat, steal, beat people up or whatever to, to get your drugs. You can get medication and you can be stabilized. I was very skeptical about medication for opioid use disorder first started in the field. And, and I don't think it works for everybody. I think when it works is when you see someone turning their life around and having a completely different trajectory than what they were on. And then I'm... I feel like, well, that 
is a potentially addicting medication that is somehow stabilizing this person. Some people don't get stabilized with methadone. They don't get stabilized with buprenorphine. They really have to do something else. And I know plenty of people, I have plenty of friends who had opioid use disorder before Suboxone was even out on the market and they didn't try methadone, who got into recovery without those. But it is a lot harder and the drugs that are on the street now are much stronger like fentanyl and you know other synthetic kind of opioid like medication or drugs and so i think it's a kind of a different time and we need different tools suboxone or buprenorphine and they get worse I will stop it because it's not for them. That's really the main thing that is different that, and they're getting worse. Then I'll say we need to change to another plan. So most of the time, I guess what I'm is a long-winded way of saying that I see people who do the sort of cannabis maintenance method, not getting any better or getting worse more so than I see them getting better. You know, harm reduction, if, you know, if I were living out on the street and I, I could either use cannabis or use heroin that might have fentanyl in it that could kill me, then I would say, yeah, that's a harm reduction method that works. I think harm reduction often to me is something that's done when people are kind of in a survival mode. And when they start to grow, that's more of like a recovery mode. And you need different tools for different stages of the whole process. I love that. Yeah, exactly. I think that's so important because really many of the patients that we're seeing, what you're just saying, these patients are in the recovery mode. We we really need to not be down there just sitting there trying to be in the survival mode because we have them on medication. So we need to not just say, yeah, just just keep hunkering down here and not letting them just kind of continue with that. Like, yeah. And so do not give buprenorphine patients controlled substances and addicting medications. We see this all the time. I know. I'm so sick of seeing buprenorphine patients on benzos. I just, it's just drives me crazy. It's so inappropriate. Oh, we so agree with you. Yeah. It's just so inappropriate in my book. Okay. I have what I have to get this question out because this was my morning stimulants. You have patients. I had a patient this morning on two stimulants and doesn't Mm. even have a diagnosis of ADD or ADHD, I believe was probably just really sedated from his active opiate use and then was given modafinil and mm-hmm. and Adderall. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Well, stimulants, first of all, nobody ever died of ADHD. So you don't really have to be on stimulants. And you know, in the hospital, we pretty much, especially if somebody's coming off alcohol or benzos or something, we stop the stimulants because they lower the seizure threshold and nothing happens. I mean, you know, that may feel a little different, but they don't feel good anyway because they're in the middle of detox. It, it's just the, it, it's just another way of pay, playing whack-a-mole. You know, you're not addressing the opioid use disorder. So what are you going to do if somebody's sleepy because they're nodding out all the time because they're using opiates? You're going to give them stimulants and you're just getting them into this vicious cycle of, well, then they're kind of wired up by the stimulants. And so they take more opiates and then they nod out more. And so then you up their stimulants and it's just this vicious cycle when deprescribing is probably the the best thing there. I do treat some people with stimulants for ADHD or ADD, but it's after I've known them for a long time and we've established a diagnosis or we have established goals and then we kind of 
take it a month at a time and see how they do. And I get feedback from family. And, and I think there is overlap for sure with people who have substance use disorders and, and ADHD. But there's also plenty of things that they can be treated with that are not stimulant. I think that's the first thing that you would do or I would do is, is try that, you know, atomoxetine, uh, bupropion and things like that, that are non-addict, potentially going to help with, with attention problems. And sometimes I've, I've actually said, okay, I'm, I'm going to try stimulant with you, even though you have a history of addiction. We set up parameters, the family members know about it, and it just doesn't work. I mean, the person is wanting to use more and more, and they're not functioning any better, and it's just not worth it. So we stop it. it it's not like I'm a purist, like I would never try them if they're the right treatment. But I would pick something that was either non-addicting to begin with and give those a good try. And if nothing else works, then I would just be very, very careful. No, I think that's such an excellent point. And I, I've experienced that. You know, I did have one patient who ha- did have a clear diagnosis and was treated by their previous addiction provider for their opiate use disorder and their ADHD and then came to me. And I, I was very hesitant and I found out rightly so it's the beginning. And then finally, I was kind of like, okay, let's try it. It went horribly wrong. (laughs) But I mean, I think your point is, you also have to be willing then to just pull the plug when it's like, okay, this we we need to have a stop if this doesn't work. This is a trial. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I this patient was so mad at me when I was just like, hey, this didn't go well, we're gonna stop. And I think that was where I made my mistake as I needed to be very clear at the beginning that this is only a trial. And if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work. I think that as people have, after they've been in recovery for a while, they're much more amenable to working with you that way. If they get angry, it's usually a sign that the recovery may not be where it needs to be. Also a good sign for me with my patients is if they're not filling their prescription every 28 to 30 days or whatever I've written it for, but they're going like 35, 45, you know, they're, they're not taking it every day. They're taking it when they are working or in school or something, and they need more focus, but they're not getting into trouble with it, so to speak. But yeah, you have to be willing to say no and pull the plug. (laughs) And a lot of uh, providers don't have the guts to do that. It's hard, you know, it's hard to do that. It's hard. Well, what if we miss on your original goal? We didn't talk about muscle relaxers. They are sort of that middle to dangerous category. They're, they're kind of in the upper <laughs> limits of the middle category. They may not be traditionally addicting, most of them, but the one that the people absolutely love is Soma. That's addict. If anybody tells you differently. And Soma is a, an interesting story because I'm not sure exactly how it got it sneaked by the FDA because it's broken down into a, a really uh, dangerous uh, sedative, mefrobamate, that was the active ingredient in the old medication names. The brand names were Equinil and Milltown and things like that. Terribly addicting. Soma is a carisoprodol or however you you know pronounce it. Extremely addicting. 
But then there's the others that I think they definitely fall into that middle category that you were talking about, Paula, where they're, you know, they can be very sedating and kind of triggering for that reason. So I try to avoid those. I mean, even in general medicine, muscle relaxants are only indicated for short-term use, general population, not patient, you know, not the recovering population. And so I'll often talk to my patients about that. Like these medications are actually only intended to be used short-term and you've been on it for many years or looks like you're now habituated to it, your body's used to it, you've kind of increased the dose and it often they often have a synergistic effect with opioids and other CNS depressants mm-hmm. and they may be addicting in and of themselves. And so I kind of use those three points and I typically stay clear of them, especially when there are other things you can use manual therapies and to help with muscle spasm because they don't target the one muscle group that's spasming. They just overall sedate the whole body in the CNS. So they're just not a great choice. And I I avoid, I personally, as a prescriber, don't prescribe them unless I absolutely have to. And if it's a patient in recovery, try, you know, to be really cautious and have a clear indication where the benefit exceeds the risk. Yeah. And and they can definitely increase your, I think, your risk of overdose because they're sedating. And and so there's that part too, just polypharmacy and the, you know, and I I have some patients that take them. I don't prescribe them (laughs) to them. They do take them and feel like they can't uh, do without them because of their back problems or whatever. But I'm skeptical. The evidence is not really there for, for those. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for being on this episode. We really appreciate it. It's like food for the for the addiction soul, the addiction medicine soul to have you on the episode. Really is. It really um, is. Can you give us can you give us two or three take home points for our listeners? We have some amazing listeners around the country, actually around the world. We have a lot of providers. We have a lot of medical students and residents. We have researchers. We have harm reduction activists. So what what would you like to say if you had to leave two or three points to our to our folks? Well, I think the main one would be beware of of awakening the sleeping giant of addiction. Don't tickle that process because you will regret it. I always think about the movie Alien when I think about the addiction. It looks very benign and all of a sudden this monster kind of flies out of someone's brain. You know, your brain completely changes and you don't want to awaken that sleeping giant. You want to leave it asleep and let somebody recover. It's always there to be awakened given the right or wrong circumstance. I think the other would be that look for non-medication ways of helping people. I'm not anti-medication. I use them all the time with patients. and But I think that we ignore, like you said earlier, that we ignore a lot of the things like exercise and diet and sleep and meditation and you know, the things that they're just not as thrilling to our pleasure reward system as acutely as like a medication, but but in the long run, they really do help the brain heal. And then the, the third thing would be just to really educate yourself if you're a medical provider of any kind and know what to do so that you're not hurting your patients. Because it's the worst thing in the world is if we make things worse because we're too ignorant to, to know what we are doing, you know. And I really, 
I feel very strongly that there's not a belief in the medical field that addiction is a long-term problem. It's considered a, oh, well, you got over that. You know, you were an alcoholic and now you're in recovery. And so you're kind of over that. And not understanding that what that means is like having a, a stroke or a brain injury. It never, those effects never really go away. It just can get into some remission and you can have a different life, but those effects are never gone. Illness or a problem or whatever you want to call it, that you need to have a lot of respect for. And one of the things you have to respect is that some of the medications that may help other things can really harm someone with addiction history and it can kill them. Until you see it over and over again, you don't believe it. And I've seen it many, oh, many, We couldn't many say times. any better. Uh, I just had a thought where you were saying that, that we could, this is a whole nother topic, but we could take this essence of this and apply it to prevention. Because how many times do we interview people and they start you were exposed to drugs prescriptions at a very early age and it triggered their vulnerable brain well thank you so much thank you so much that was fantastic dr hal has some excellent resources and we have a medication guide for patients in recovery that she has shared with us and we will put that in the show notes so this is for all those providers and patients out there if you have not been given a list by your provider review that that is something that you need to know the medication you want to make sure that you avoid. Thank you. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.